There's three stories I want to start with tonight, um, from least to most serious and important. The first one is uh, on May 22nd of this year, uh, I sat stage side at Taylor Swift. And that was a big deal, and I just think you need to know that about me. Um, Sang every song, uh, loved it more than anyone else that I was there with. The second thing you need to know about um, me is that I love to... I love to smoke food. I love to um, get meat and prepare it and put the spices on it. I love to build the fire and to to get the food on there and to get it just right. I'm not always getting it just right, but I love to try and get it just right. I love to invite people over to eat it. And uh, about two, three years ago, my wife Sarah bought me a a book about cooking food. Maybe that was a hint that I wasn't doing it well. But it was a 304-page book about cooking meat. So it was kind of serious, like big boy pants type stuff. And so I read it because I wanted to be better. And I got to the section on how to cook and prepare and to smoke ribs. And at one point, I think if you were to be, if you were watching me read that book, when I got to that section, you probably would have seen my mouth fall open because in that book, it unlocked the secret to the universe of cooking ribs. And it is this, that when you get a slab of ribs from the store, there is a very hard to see, very thin membrane that coats the ribs. And if you've ever had tough ribs, I'm going to tell you what happened. That person didn't know that membrane was there, and therefore they didn't take it off. But so what you're supposed to do then is, knowing that this membrane is there, you're supposed to run your fingers under it, and you peel it off, and this is gross and all that, I understand. Um, But you take the membrane off so that it's not tough, so that you're not, like, chewing through this leathery membrane thing while you're also trying to eat the meat. The second thing that happens, though, with that membrane is that as you, pa- as you pack the spices on and the barbecue sauce and all of the stuff you put on it, as long as the membrane is there, the spices and the sauce and the flavor doesn't get into the meat. It stays on the outside of the membrane. And it may taste fine, but it's just not going to taste like it should. God designed that membrane to be gone when you eat ribs. That's the second story. The third story is this, from least serious to most serious. From the age of 11 until well into my 23rd year uh, in this world, um, I had what I can only think could be characterized as a deep addiction to pornography and sexual sin. Um, I had early exposure in fifth grade at a friend's house, and that early exposure snowballed over the course of those 12 years into a lot of darkness. It didn't just play out uh, in a fantasy world in my mind with a computer. It played out in real relationships with real people. And there was real hurt and destruction and brokenness that existed uh, in my life and around my life for a big part of my life. And I don't, look, I don't share that to be like, you know, the edgy pastor who gets vulnerable in front of you. I share that because of this. Simultaneous to that deep, that deep struggle and giving in, for most of my life, for most of those 12 years, it wasn't even a struggle because I just didn't think I could change. I just gave in and did it. But for most of those 12 years, I was also 
a star student. I was a leader in high school and in college. Um, I made the highest GPA that had ever come through my high school. I was a youth group kid. I led Bible studies. And even at the very end of that period, I had gone into full-time ministry. I was an intern with RUF at Vanderbilt. And what happened was after I moved to Nashville to take that job, uh, about a week after I moved out there, I called a girl that I was dating very seriously. And in a very kind of nonchalant, very stoic Manner. I told her over the phone, and we had talked about being married. We had had lots of serious discussions. Over the phone, in a very flat affect, I said, I'm going to break up with you. And she, rightly so, on the other end, was like, what? And I said, yeah, I don't think we should date anymore. And, you know, the conversation went a little longer than we hung up. And about two days later, uh, my dear friend, still a dear friend to this day, he was my campus minister with RUF when I was at OU, He called me on Thursday, September 9th, 2004 it was, and he said, I remember remember where I was, I remember exactly what he said, Brent, I don't know how else to love you. There's something that you're not telling me about your life. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. What is going on with you? And as I now, many years later, having looked back on this and as I've come to understand it, the thing that was going on inside of me was that through that experience of of failure and of brokenness and of uh, sexual grossness, I became deeply ashamed of who I was. And because of that deep shame, I had created a membrane of sorts around my heart and my life. It's a membrane of self-protection, and it decides that no one is going to get in here. And so that's what made it possible for me to have this life over here that I was living and experiencing, and this life over here that everyone else was seeing and experiencing. And what I want to suggest to you tonight is that it is my shame and it is your shame that is creating this membrane of self-protection around your heart. And that if you never deal with it, if you never address it and ask the question, what do I do about that? Then friends, your relationships presently and henceforth will never be the way that God intended them to be. Last week, uh, I mentioned that shame is its one of the effects of the fall into sin, of man's decision and choice to rebel against God and the way that he created us to live and to work and to, and to flourish here in this world. Shame is one of the effects of that. It's just one of them. You can listen to the podcast from last week to listen to the others. But shame is of such importance because of what I've just said that if you never deal with it, it will train wreck you and it will keep you from experiencing the life, relationally speaking, that God has for you. Now, the leading researcher on shame is a woman named uh, Bryn or Brene Brown. And she says this. Um, she says that the only, peri- the only people who don't experience shame are sociopaths. 
people who are unable to either give or receive empathy or compassion. So the question for you or the reality for you tonight is not whether you have shame. It's are you a sociopath or do you have shame? You pick. (laughs) You're either a sociopath who is unable to receive and give empathy and and compassion or you are someone who is dealing with shame. And you may never have known it, but we're going to talk about it and see why it is a reality in your life. So the passage we're going to look at is actually part of the passage we looked at last week. We're going to look at it again. This is Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 6 through verse 10, and we'll skip down to verse 21. This is God's Word. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, Satan was tempting the woman to eat, that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the, Lord, the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he, the man, Adam, said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. Because I was naked and I hid myself. Down to verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. The three things that we're going to look at tonight about shame are this. The definition of shame, the destruction of shame, and lastly, the death of shame. So first one right there, the definition of shame. What is shame? What is it? Here's a definition that I'm going to be working from. This is from Brenna Brown, um, and it's coherent and, and jives with Scripture. Shame is the intensely painful feeling that we are unworthy of love and belonging. Shame is the intensely painful feeling that we are unworthy of love and belonging. Shame is the voice that says, I am bad. Not that I did something bad. Shame is the voice that says, I am bad. It's who you are. It's who I am. A few um, moving pieces in this passage. Let me, um, let me kind of pull this together from verses 7 and 10. Verse 7 says, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Verse 10, And he, Adam, said, I heard the sound of you, God, in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid myself. What's going on here? They have a realization. There's something that they think and realize, and it is this. We are naked. Okay, there's a cognitive thing that happens. They look up and say, we are naked. There's something that they feel in that moment, and here it is. We feel flawed. Something's not the way it's supposed to be anymore. And we know that because they start covering themselves. They feel dirty. They feel exposed. And they feel afraid. They feel flawed, exposed, dirty, and afraid. And so what do they do? They cover themselves and they hide. They cover themselves and they hide. 
They, they grab leaves. This is not like, ooh, let's make ourselves something sexy and put it on. They're grabbing anything they can find to cover themselves because they are ashamed of who they are and what they're wearing, which at that point is nothing. So they pull leaves off the trees and, and they fashion them together for the first underwear that ever existed, I guess. I want to drill down deep on that middle one right there, the the do, uh, sorry, the feel. What, what are, what's going on with Adam and Eve as this whole thing begins to spiral into brokenness? What's happening? Um, the first thing we have to understand before we can talk about really what's happening is we have to kind of pull apart the difference between guilt and shame. Okay? So let me do that for just a second. Let me talk about guilt. Guilt is the knowledge in the sense that I did something wrong. That there was a law or there was a command that I did not follow. I did something opposite of that. And so guilt comes. It's a knowledge of I didn't do what I should have done. Is there guilt present here in this passage? Yes. Because God had commanded Adam and Eve, Hey, I've given you this whole world. Do this. Live this way. Have lots of sex and babies. Do that. That's good. Don't eat of this one tree. What did they do? They ate of that one tree. So there was an an innate knowledge that we did not do what we were supposed to do. Or we did something that we weren't supposed to do. There is guilt here. And so what happens with them? They're afraid of God. Part of their being afraid is because they're guilty. Because here's what happened. God said, if you eat of that tree, you will surely die. So when they eat of it, they're afraid of God because they've got to be thinking, God's going to kill us. He told us that we would die. We ate of it. Therefore, we die. So they're afraid of God. They're hiding from Him because they're guilty. They transgressed His commandment. And they're afraid of Him for that. So there's this right and proper sense of fear and afraidness that they have because they're standing guilty before God. Friends, guilt is not just an Adam and Eve problem. Guilt is an us problem. Because there's not any of us in this room, there's not any person that's ever lived and existed in the whole world who has ever obeyed God perfectly. I mean, it's not even close. It's a joke, except it's not funny. We have a guilt problem also. So that's guilt. I want to pull that apart because that's not what we're going to talk about tonight. That's not what we're going to talk about. That's super important, and we talk about it a lot, but that's not what we're talking about tonight. Tonight we're talking about shame, and shame is the sense not that I did something bad, but that I am something bad. That there's something deeply flawed about me. And because that's true, I am not worthy to be loved or accepted. I don't belong to anyone. I don't belong to God. I can't belong to others. I'm too far gone. And Adam and Eve are feeling this too. Because they hide from each other. They cover themselves. Where does shame come from? So that's kind of what shame is. It's the sense of there's something about me that is deeply wrong and flawed. Where does it come from? Right there. Uh, It comes from, first, things that we do. This would be what what we're reading right here, Genesis 3. Shame and the, the effects of sin being one of those shame comes from when we willfully 
don't follow God. We do what we want to do and think is right other than what God wants us to do and tells us is right. Shame follows that because we sense that we are dirty, that I haven't done what I'm supposed to do. This is what's going on with Adam and Eve. And this is what is going on for many of you because of your sexual choices. It's what existed in my life for so long because of my sexual choices. We experience shame because we promise God we won't look at porn again and we do the next day. We experience shame because we promise God we won't go there with our boyfriend or girlfriend or the random person again and we do. We experience shame because we do these things, whatever they look like in your life, if not sexually or relationally at this point, in whatever way you are not following God, you will have a sense of dirtiness. So shame comes from things that we do, but that's not the only place it comes from. It comes from things that are done to us. Friends, the sad and awful reality of life in this world on this side of Genesis 3, on this side of the fall and sin entering into the world and making everything come undone, is that there are things that, are done, that have been done to you that aren't your fault. And that leaves you with a deep experience of shame. The Bible is remarkably and at times very uncomfortably honest about these things. It's not a tame book. It's not a rule book. It's brutally honest. There's rape. There's incest. There's murder. There's abuse of every kind. There's racism. There's everything that's wrong in the world is in the Bible. The Bible talks about it. The reality is, is that for people, is that there are people who have done and said awful things to you, every one of you and me. And that feeling that you have and that deep sense of dirtiness and unworthiness and unlovableness, that's yours because of what he did to you that night. That's yours because of that thing your mom said to you when you were 14. That's yours because when you were young and you needed someone to protect you while you were young and vulnerable, that didn't happen. And you're left with this life experience of feeling, ugh, I'm too bad, I'm too dirty. No one could ever love me. I'll never belong. And you need to hear that for this category of shame, it is not your fault. It's not your fault. Shame comes from somewhere else too. It comes from Satan. The Bible is very honest about Satan and how he is still seeking to destroy people in this world. He did it in the beginning with Adam and Eve, and he's still doing it today. The Hebrew word that we translate Satan means the accuser. 
It means the accuser. So that means that Satan exists to hurl accusations at you. He lives to make you feel less than and despised in that, that sense of unworthiness and that you'll never belong because of who you are. He would love nothing more than for you to keep that thin membrane of self-protection around your life because He knows that when you let others into there, when you let God into that place, you begin to be healed and you begin to have life and to move out in the world in a way that you can bring life to others. But He knows as long as that membrane is there, you will never let others in. So you've probably heard things like this. You're too fat. Your thighs touch. And because of that, you feel shame. You've heard things like this. You're too effeminate. You'll never be a man. Your skin is too dark. You'll always be second class and less than. You're boring. You're not funny. No one really enjoys you. You're not that smart. It's just a matter of time before people figure it out. You don't know what you're doing in this relationship. You've never done it before. It's never going to work. You're such a prude. What Satan does is he comes into these areas of your life, which are just things about who you are, and he accuses you about that. He, he turns them in your mind, and he whispers these voices in you and in your head, which you realize that, yes, those things are true about me. I already knew that I wasn't that smart. Now it's just a matter of time before people find out. I already knew that, that I don't look the right way. It's just that's confirming what I thought was already true. Satan wants you to believe that just who you are isn't enough. The Bible says that Satan came to steal, kill, and destroy. And my experience in 34 years... I said, he's pretty good at that. He's pretty good at that. So that's a quick attempt at defining shame. There's so much we could say. There's books written about it. There's obviously something that that comes from this. If that's what shame is, then shame is going to be doing things to us. And yes, it does things. It destroys us. There's destruction that comes from shame. It's the second thing we see tonight. Let's look and see what it did to Adam and Eve in this passage. We'll go back to the think, feel, do. They think and realize we are naked. They feel flawed and afraid. And what do they do? They cover themselves and hide. And so we're going to go to the third one right there, the do. What does shame do? It, it drives us to this desire and this need to cover and to hide ourselves. Let's talk about covering and what that means. Adam and Eve reached for whatever they can find, as I mentioned, so that the other person wouldn't see the real them. So that the other person wouldn't see the real exposed version of them. Don't you know that we do the same thing? You have to know this. We do the exact same thing. It's just that our fig leaves look different. Busyness. Busyness is a fig leaf. Don't you guys realize that some of 
you, the reasons that you do so many things, is because you have figured out that if you're constantly going from thing to thing to thing to thing, from organization and meeting to class to study to making yourself feel busy, because you've realized that if you are a moving target, then no one can nail you down and actually get to know you. You've realized that if you stay still long enough, if you give them accessibility to your life, then they will have accessibility to your heart. And you don't want that. Because you have shame and you're embarrassed of what's there. So you stay busy. What does your schedule say about your desire to cover up? The second thing the second way we cover up is in our spiritual lives. Now, I recognize this may sound strange for some of you, particularly if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian yet, and maybe you haven't been around this kind of stuff long, but I assure you this is very true. And for some of you, it's not just true, it's personal. You have figured out that if you do enough good spiritual things, then people around you will perceive that you are doing good and that you're quite spiritually mature. And so they will default into thinking that you must be okay. Look at him. He's going to all these Bible studies. He's going to RUF and to BCM and to Stumo and to Wesley and to the Catholic Center. He's doing everything. He must be really spiritual. His life must be working. He must be fine. Oh, look at her. She's always sharing the gospel with people. She's always reading her Bible. She's always praying. She's always going on mission trips and talking about them. She must be really spiritual. She must be really together. She must be fine. Some of us have figured out that that's actually a way to hide, to cover ourselves, rather. It's a, it's a fig leaf that we sow. But here's the destructive part of that for those of you who this is true. The first, part of the, way this, the first way this is destroying you is that you feel like an absolute hypocrite. You feel like a hypocrite because you're doing all these things and you know the condition of your heart. You know what is going on or what has gone on inside of you. So you, you feel like a fraud. The second thing that's true of you if this is uh, your situation is that you are exhausted of going from thing to thing to thing and trying to prop up this veneer of religiosity and spirituality to cover up your deep sense of brokenness in your life's not the way it should be. You may be fooling a few people, but you're not fooling yourself and you're not fooling God. The third way we try to sow fig leaves is through our personalities. Let me be careful here. We are all made differently. We have unique and beautiful personalities. Thank God He did not like make all of us like me. And thank God He didn't make all of us like you. It's a good thing. But we're all trying to cover up aspects of our personalities that we don't like, that we're ashamed of, that we feel that sense of, I don't like this about me. And some of you have decided the best way to keep people from seeing who you really are and from asking about you, the, the real you, is through just being a fun person or being a kind person or maybe even a I don't give a crap about the world kind of person. So let me talk about those three real quick. A fun person. You've decided and figured out that if you can always be having fun, then there will be no opportunity for serious talk in your life. That everyone will be perceiving that, man, she just... 
She's always having fun. She's always got a smile on her face. She's always doing lots of stuff. What does that lots of fun stuff look like? It means that you drink a lot. Often. Why? Because it can be fun. And that's what you're trying to project is you're fun. You're a fun person. You don't want to get into serious talk. So you go do that. It's fun. And look... I believe there is a right way to handle alcohol when you're of age and drink it in moderation. Confession. I believe that. But we all need to acknowledge that that's not the way this is handled on a college campus most often. People are doing it in excess because they want to have fun because I'm suggesting they're trying to hide. They're trying to cover things about themselves. Maybe yourself. So you do that. What else do we do? Well, we chase entertainment. We fill, our, we fill our evenings and our weekends with concerts and lake trips and movies and Netflix and road trips or maybe more drinking or gambling and fantasy football or shopping or eating out. You do all this stuff because you just love to have fun. You want to have fun because so that you don't have to be serious. And now I love fun probably more than you do. Fun is okay, but when fun is your default mechanism to cover your shame, fun becomes a problem. And it's expensive, y'all. Newsflash. It's really expensive. Some of you decided you can cover by being kind, by being the kind person. So you're always the one that's available and helping other people. Your door's always open and people are always in there because they've realized that you actually listen to them. And some of you love that. Like it does something real inside of you. And you take pride in that. And the moment someone asks you, well, is there anything I can do for you? No, I'm good. I'm good. I'm fine, thanks. And you may actually believe that's the sad thing because you never take the time to think about yourself in a healthy way. You're never considering what might actually be going on in your own heart because you've decided that it's easier to be dealing with other people's hearts than to face your own. Some of you are kind. And then there's the don't give a crap kind of person. Um... (laughs) You just have decided that you're not going to take anything seriously and you act like nothing matters and nothing bothers you and everything is always cool. And quite frankly, I don't know what to do with you. <laughs> and your friends don't either because you're always, they're always kind of wondering, is he serious? Is she, is she serious? I don't. So we just don't know what to do with you. But you've decided that's a way to cover up. Act like you don't care. The second way shame destroys us is that it sends us into hiding. So look back at the passage right there twice. In verse 8 and verse 10, we see them go into hiding. It's the same hiding, but it talks about twice. In verse 10, Adam says, I heard the sound of you in the garden, God, and I was afraid because I was naked. So what did I do? I hid myself. Now, to understand how big of a deal this is, you have to understand of how drastic of a change this is from the way it was supposed to be. After God created Adam and Eve and everything was still good and sin hadn't happened, they existed together in perfect harmony and togetherness. And there was relational joy there and there was a full exposure of everything that was because there was nothing to be ashamed about. And it was great. They were together together. And what we have now is them running for the bushes, hiding from God and from each other. They're embarrassed. There's a sense of shame that I'm not what I should be. There's something wrong with me now. So they hid. And you hide too. I hide. 
You're overweight in a culture that's obsessed with being thin. And so you hide. You feel alone. If you're not from the right financial background and you live in the midst of people who are all financially successful or uh, they're affluent, then you feel alone and like no one can relate to you, so you hide. If you've got a learning difficulty that makes it very hard for you to put the pieces together and you function and and live amongst people who are very capable and who kind of always are doing great and excelling, then you feel alone, so you hide. If you've got truckloads of sexual baggage and you exist in the middle of people who don't talk about it, they've got it. They just don't talk about it. If that's who you are and that's what you know you're bringing to the, to the table here, then you feel alone and you hide. If you experience same-sex attraction in a place or a family or a church or community that doesn't know how to talk about that in a healthy and dignifying way and even to let you just tell them how you feel, if that is you, then you feel alone and you go and hide. Bryn Brown says, shame buys in to the belief that I'm alone. And that aloneness sends you into hiding. I don't know if anyone listens to Radiohead anymore. They were kind of cool back when I was a pup. Uh, But they had a song called Creep. You may know that song, Creep. I'm a creep. It sounds creepy. It's a beautiful song because they really got it. Um, this, this song articulates what we feel about ourselves, the sense of uncleanness and aloneness that wants to send us into hiding. And here's what one of the, some of the verses, or the lyrics say. I don't care if it hurts. I want to have control. I want a perfect body. I want a perfect soul. I want you to notice when I'm not around. You're so effing special. I wish I was special. But I'm a creep. I'm a weirdo. What the hell am I doing here? I don't belong. Friends, this sense of I don't belong has led all of us into hiding. And it's the reason why some of us in the room have wanted to hide forever. And we've had those thoughts of maybe it, maybe it would just be better if I didn't exist. We take that desire to be alone and to hide and we take it to the nth degree and we say, maybe I should just, maybe I should take my life. I don't belong. Shame is a destructive reality in our lives. It's a thing about you that if you never deal with it, then you will live in perpetual relational shallowness and paralysis. You will either be scared for others to get too deep or you will be functionally paradized at thinking it paralyzed at thinking you will ever have a healthy relationship be it friendship parental romantic whatever so what in the world do we do about it t swift says maybe we just shake it off maybe we just 
like kind of ignore it. Maybe we do something and somehow get rid of it. But you and I both know that will never work. That that will never work. And what I want to tell you tonight, that if, that if you are ever going to begin to feel freedom from the shame that exists in your life, then that shame has to die. That it has to die. The death of shame in your life begins in the passage in front of you in verse 9. Let's look down at it together. It says this, God comes after them. He pursues them. He says, where are you? God comes after them. They do not go after God. What are Adam and Eve doing? They are hiding. What is God doing? He is pursuing them. And He's saying, where are you? Adam and Eve thought when God showed up that He was going to be bringing His justice and judgment stick. Because He told them, if you you sin, you will die. And what we see here from God is not wrath and fury and promised death. We see God tenderly drawing them out and saying, where are you? Why didn't they immediately die? Did they deserve to die? Yes. Why didn't they die? We'll look at verse 21. It says that God clothed them with the skins of an animal. God said, if you do this, you will die. Death is always, when, you are, when, when there is a holy God and you transgress Him, and He tells you, if you transgress me, you will die. He, he has to be just. If He doesn't follow through on that, He's a liar. And so Adam and Eve did it. You've got to die. They didn't die. Something dies, though. Verse 21, God kills an animal and says, I'm going to take an animal as your substitute. And I'm going to take that animal skin and I'm going to cover you with it. But friends, that animal skin could never, ever fix the deepest needs of their hearts. That skin from that animal was a temporary fix for their sin and its effects. They accepted the substitute right then and there. You better believe it. But they needed a bigger substitute. They needed a greater substitute that that animal was pointing to. A substitute who could actually take their sin and cover them fully and bring them out of hiding. And isn't it so interesting that the Apostle Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5.21, that God made him, and the him right there is Jesus, God made him who knew no sin to be sin. So that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. What, God, what Paul is saying is God brought a substitute. God brought a greater animal who could come and be killed for your sin and cover you. It happens. That's what Jesus does. Paul's saying that there is a person who didn't sin and who didn't have shame and who had nothing to cover up or hide from. And friends, God's pursuit of sinners and people who experience shame doesn't end in verse 9 in that passage. It ends in your life. It ends in Jesus because in Jesus we see that God actually pursues us to the point of entering into our world. And saying, I'm not, I'm not going to come and tell you what you should do. I'm not going to come and teach you how to live. I'm going to become your substitute. 
I'm going to not only take your sin upon me in the cross and be punished for it, which he does, hallelujah. But it is so fascinating to see that all four of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all go to great lengths to say that on Jesus, on the way to the cross, as he was going through that ordeal, that the guards, they cast lots for his clothes. What does that tell us? That when Jesus went up on the cross, he was naked. He was exposed for the whole world to see. And on the cross, Jesus cries out and says this, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Bryn Brown says that shame cannot survive where it is brought to light and where it experiences empathy. A very simple definition of empathy is this. Someone looking at you and saying, Me too. That's my story. I know what you're talking about. That's who I am. Friends, on the cross, when Jesus is hanging between man and God, when He cries out and says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is embodying the thing that we all feel. That sin sin and shame has us feeling separated from God and others. And on the cross, you need to hear Jesus saying, Me too. I embodied your nakedness. I know what this feels like. And what Jesus offers us at the cross in His death is a covering for you. Is a way for you to look at your life and be honest about what's there. And to acknowledge the shame and to acknowledge the self-protective membrane that we have created because of our shame. And we have to look at Jesus on the cross and Him saying, Me too. I know what it's like to be you. It's awful. And I'm taking all of that awfulness on me so that you might know what it's like to be me. And be clothed in my righteousness. And be restored to God so that He may begin to restore you to others. Friends, when you come to Jesus, He takes your guilt, yes, but He also takes your shame. So the question that I'm going to leave you with tonight is the question that God asked Adam and Eve. Where are you? Where are you? Let's pray.